Is it just me or does it feel a bit difficult to be patriotic these days? We are uploading today's episode on July 4th, the American Independence Day, for our international listeners out there. And yet, it doesn't quite feel like a time to celebrate. You know, I'm not going to go down too deep of a political rabbit hole here, um, but it feels like, you know, regardless of where you stand on whatever issue, our country is just in a really weird place. It just feels like we have never been more divided and isolated. So it might sound weird to suggest that an antidote to all of these feelings might just be Independence Day. No, I'm not talking about the holiday this time. I'm talking about Roland Emmerich's 1996 landmark blockbuster. If you've seen the movie, you know that it is patriotic, but sort of in a 1996 kind of way, not a 2022 kind of way. It was pre-9-11, after all, and that often makes the film feel more like an oddity or a time capsule than a modern masterpiece. But I recently heard a perspective that had me reconsidering all of that, and it comes courtesy of a new friend that I've made in the podcasting world, Marlon Williford. He is the host of his own solo podcast, Marlin's Corner, as well as one of the co-hosts on the Roundtable podcast, Geek Force, both of which focus on pop culture, media, and politics through a POC lens. I was lucky enough to be a guest on Marlin's Corner, where we talked about the relatively forgettable adaptation of Uncharted that came out earlier this year. So I can speak from firsthand experience that Marlin is always thinking critically about the media that he consumes. So when he explained his take on sci-fi and aliens and Independence Day, I was floored. He came at it from a new, modern angle, and it was inspiring to hear that even a movie as massive and as 90s as Independence Day could still speak to the current cultural moment and imbue it with hope. But how does it do that? What can we learn from Independence Day that makes it just as relevant now as it was then? Marlin's got you covered. He completely reshaped the way I saw this movie, and by the end of this episode, it's going to do the same for you. Hello and welcome to My Favorite Movie Is, a podcast celebrating our favorite movies through fresh, positive takes from passionate movie lovers. I'm your host and a movie lover just like you, Larry Freed. And every week we sit down with a brand new cinephile as they share the life-changing experiences behind their all-time favorite movie, or whatever comes closest. Through their stories, you will gain brand new, modern insight into some of the most talked about movies of all time, all while deepening your appreciation and love for cinema and reaffirming the power of filmmaking. Thank you so much for being here. We know that there are plenty of other movie podcasts that you listen to, and we are honored to be amongst them. Quickly, before we get started, if you haven't watched the movie that we're talking about today, don't worry, you can still continue to listen to this episode, which is spoiler-free uh, for now. Eventually, we are going to have to dive into the nitty-gritty, but when we do, we're going to give you a fair spoiler warning, so that way you can go into this film as fresh as possible. But for those of you who did the homework, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of My Favorite Movie Is. Hello, my name is Marlon Williford, and my favorite movie is Independence Day. 
for a lot of folks out there, you have Netflix and that's fantastic. But back in our day, we had Blockbuster, Hollywood videos. Uh, and I remember being eight or nine and having the experience of like, I'm gonna rent a big adult film. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rent a PG-13 movie <laughs> and really rein in those teenage years early. No one's gonna know, my mom's lying for me saying it's for her. It's like, yeah, this is it. Like I am breaking all the kid rules right now. I feel like nine is like ideal PG-13 movie rental age in that mm. era. I just remember seeing the, the box cover art for this and just being like Independence Day. Like that looks really cool. It's PG-13, it's in like this really like interesting album with these other like sci-fi films. I gotta check this out. And so I remember being with my brother and be like, this is gonna be one of the two films we're allowed to to rent in our family Friday night getting blockbuster films. And my mom warned me, this is a scary movie. Uh, and I was like, no, no, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna commit to this. I'm gonna watch a scary film. I gotta, I gotta power it out of me. I gotta get through this. Here's the thing, in my family, at a young age, I've been very much the coward. <laughs> I didn't like watching anything too scary. I was that one cousin that when all the cousins went out, like, my mom was like, don't take him to see a scary movie. He's, he's gonna have nightmares. I think the one I remember vividly was uh, Blade. I remember... You saw Blade in a movie theater when... Was this when you were, like, before Blockbuster? This was, like, when you were super young. Super young, yeah. I remember, like, this is the one time where, like, this is why my mom was like, don't do that again. And, like, <laughs> added the, the caveat of, like, he can't do these films. Because I remember, like, we were all at, like, my cousin's birthday party. He and I are the exact same age, but he was really into watching films that he should have been watching. Uh, but he heard about Blade. He wanted to go see it. His family was like, great, we'll get all the kids together. We'll go to the movie theater. My mom just heard movie theater. Didn't really think to, like, ask, like, oh, great, they're all the same age. <laughs> what could they possibly see? And then we ended up seeing a rated R Blade I film. know. You were just, like, breaking all the rules yeah. right from the get. I specifically remember the scene where I lost it and like hat and like left the theater fully just in tears. Wow. Was the nightclub scene where it starts raining blood on everyone of and people course, start going yeah. ape shit. I'm like, oh, I cannot handle <laughs> this. And I just pieced out of there like, no, 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 no. Oh my goodness. That that is trauma material. I was like, this is rated R? This is this is so scary. I can't be in here for this. <laughs> I assume you've revisited the film since and have atoned. Yes. And what's wild is like, I absolutely love that scene now. Of so course, like, it's a classic. That's the coolest classic scene I've ever seen in my life. It's raining blood everyone's just like having a fun time but as a child like this is like fully overstimulation it's blood it's violence it's just loud blaring music i'm like i gotta get out of this space i watched independence day every single day until we returned it because i hadn't been really big into watching these really intense films I fully remember just being blown away by the sheer destruction scenes that this movie spent millions on doing. I remember vividly seeing that scene in the film where they blow up a skyscraper and it just blows up directly from top to bottom and just being just jaw to the floor watching this fireball just ripple through Los Angeles and just being like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. Uh, and I think that for me was like, oh, this is, 
this is intense. This is so cool. And then seeing every subsequent explosion having the exact same reaction of like, whoa, movies can be so cool. And this is amazing to watch. Had you ever seen violence on screen like that before? No, I think I was mostly used to like TMNT turtle with like the, the bow staff and like the, I'm going to like flick you between the eyes, very much like on par, PG-13, nothing too crazy. But this is like, oh, people are getting fully eviscerated, fully blown up, sacrificing themselves in like huge hellish infernos. I just remember just like fully just being so just enthralled by this movie. When I look back on my uh, just exposure to film, I really have to say that Blockbuster and Hollywood videos, I think, opened up a whole other world for a lot of people, including myself and my family. Like, we, of course, did the, you know, once in a while, go to the movies together and, like, we would split up and watch different films. But being able to go to a Blockbuster video and know that we have, like, a five-movie limit, getting two movies that are for my my brother and I that are very kid-like appropriate, but also my mom and I. And my brother and I finding a third film that we all could watch together was just like this really cool moment of like sharing where she's a cool like, this is Denzel Washington, this is Sydney Party. Like just like being able to introduce like older actors to us through films that either she had seen or films she had heard about and wanted to watch with us. I think it was a great time of I think just having home cinema. Like I remember us like just going out and like either getting the blockbuster video and then buying it later at at, at, like a target and like just being able to have these films that really made us look forward to Friday night. You talking about blockbuster and all this is like making me realize that like blockbuster was truly like a a feat of accessibility that I don't think a lot of people give credit for. It's kind of become a butt of a joke now Mm -hmm. because you know, the streaming wars killed it. But you know, I also have fond blockbuster memories. That's how I discovered uh, Batman really for the first time i saw batman and batman forever for the first time through rentals uh, through blockbuster i remember school of rock was a movie we discovered Mm. through blockbuster some true classics are there any other like formative blockbuster films that you can think of that had just like an indelible impact on who marlin would become oh my goodness i would have to say another film that i think had a really big impact on me through blockbuster it was the Steven Spielberg film AI. Oh man! And I remember that's also, a great pick, right? And I remember getting it thinking, like, "Oh, it has a really cool cover." Um, and I'm like, "This looks interesting." And I just got it like for the cover. Didn't even read the back. Like, "Oh, it looks cool." And I remember just being taken on this internal, introspective journey around like, "What is life? How does it mean to truly live?" <laughs> and then just sitting there being like oh my God, I was not expecting to be taken on this journey so early in my life. And I just remember sitting there after the credits rolled and just thinking like, wow, that was a lot. Man, <laughs> I don't really have any other thought. I didn't watch it a second. I watched it once and just didn't watch it again because it just was like that impact. I think it, is, it causes such, so many dreams of like introspective dreams around like, do I live every day? Is every day the same day? Is every day different? And it just being like, this is way too old for me probably to even be thinking about, but this is now in my brain. So you're growing up, you're watching films, you're consuming films, you end up going to study communications. Mm-hmm. Did you find that that choice to study that came from your, your growing nerddom? Can you draw a line between those things? The reason going, I went into mass communications um, 
was specifically to find stories to tell. I was in New Orleans, so there were just stories everywhere. And I remember a class I took specifically, I think spurred my enjoyment around films, when I took a, a class on Disney films, specifically in MassCom. And it was on Disney films and marketing. And just like, we watched all these Disney films and these are films that we all had seen as kids. And then we took the time to stop and just analyze them, just adding extra layers to them, looking at films like The Lion King 2. It's a fun film, it has great songs. Let's look at the story it's telling inadvertently. Look at these lions. They are all colored in this specific tone of like, they're all like a darker brown. And the Pride Rock lions are all very vibrant yellow. And so when you do this like right. fight scene, you're seeing this like white and black thing happening, which you didn't really know. And then we also go into like the dialect of the lines on this side versus the lines on that side. How one group speaks in this very like empirical like English and the other side speaks in like a broken English and be able to kind of play, oh, like you're telling a story of like two groups of people, the has, the have not, the educated and the uneducated and the black and the white. And it's kind of like looking at it through those lens. And then we also saw other films, we saw Disney, decom films and talked about how they all told these really weird stories so interesting i think what was interesting was that in the class we talked about how the pre-renaissance films themselves like just pretty plainly and clearly have just depictions of things that they can no longer do like if you watch dumbo like great yeah they can no longer do a dumbo that film itself is just right <laughs> The Jim Crows themselves make it impossible to make that even a, a thing we can do. Uh, and then you watch films like Fantasia, like, great, there's a whole thing with this, like, mm -hmm. menstrual centaur creature, like, great. So it's like, we know these films before this time are all going to be riddled with this. Let's talk about films during, like, this heyday of, like, great art, great animation, and, like, look at where, like, they were just, like, still a product of their own environment. With films like these sequels that we see with like Lion King 2, Cinderella 2, we see that a lot of these direct-to-DVD sets let a lot of things slide that you know they couldn't necessarily put in like the actual like to film versions of them. In the 90s, like specifically, we saw that there was this like want or this need to bring folks together to like kind of like erase the otherdom in the room. And we see a lot of that through these DCOM films in films like Xenon and films like The Color of Friendship, where they really want to go above and beyond to say, great, no one is different. Equality exists in America and you need to believe that. It's why the 90s is pretty much viewed as like, oh, it seems like everyone was cool in the 90s. Everyone was like pretty much together, but it's like, great. The 90s is this great universal hippie love period, but there were still issues going on that we just really weren't privy to because we were pretty much just tuned into what the media that was available to us was. It was just like, I was like, yo, this class is amazing. This is like hitting a spot that I was like looking to hit and this is like actually doing it for me. I remember being at a, a crossroads in my life of like either I'm going into journalism or I'm going into education. And I'd worked for Channel 4 News in New Orleans for about half a year, and I was enjoying that. I took some time off and I volunteered in Jamaica to do a teaching program down there for a little bit. And that's when I met some amazing kids. I decided, you know what, this is where I'm gonna go. I eventually ended up working in a high school, my old high school over Richmond as a disciplinary dean. My office is pretty much 
just a geek tavern. You walk in there, the outside, it's a very serious looking door. You walk inside, there's like a flash poster, there's a couple of Funko Pop bobbleheads, there's a couple of like really Amazing. like foam swords. And it's like, this is a huge change from where I just came. <laughs> and you like let them like make jokes about the room. You let them like hold a Captain America shield or like a fun little replica. And like, even though they're like teenagers, they're still like, this is still kind of cool. I had normally been working with my school of students who wanted to do like a podcast on site and we would, I would help them feed them ideas and talk about things and also help them kind of like dissect their thoughts around pop culture, around things. And with the pandemic, that was no longer anything we could do anymore due to internet access, due to just materials. So I heard a friend of mine was doing a podcast that was in a similar vein. Geek Force is a group of me, uh, Marlon, my friend Raymond, my friend Kat, and Eming. We discuss pop culture of the now through our POC lens and talk about like what it means for the future of the specific property, as well as what it means uh, and how it impacts us. I did a couple of guest spots talking about a few things. I specifically remember the big one being around Falcon and the Winter Soldier coming to Disney Plus and having that really cool dichotomy of Sam Wilson, a black military vet, taking on the mantle of Captain America and then having this whole internal argument that I think a lot of black folks have around patriotism uh, and whether or not we can feel it in a world where we feel targeted. And I think it really spurred a lot of this dialogue that I think helped bring on my friend Raymond as well. Uh, and so we kind of had this back and forth around what does it mean in this world to be a black superhero? We also pull up every now and again some like pop culture, whether it's the wild things happening in Texas with the abortions or the don't say gay bill. We definitely like discuss things in our, our lenses and talk about how they affect our group, our peoples. Marlon's Corner is about a 30 minute chunk. It's basically geek force, but reduced down from an hour and a half, two hours to just like 30 minutes at the most. Where I began trying to find other shows on Netflix that seem pretty much targeted to a specific audience. And like, just kind of saying, great, like this show is obviously targeted not to me, but from my lens, here's what I'm noticing, here's what I'm seeing, how it, I feel, affects the crowd or community that I come from and kind of give you that uh, reflection on my end. My mom is very much an undercover nerd. She is very, oh. she's very into Star Trek. And hadn't told us about it because she didn't know if we were gonna be interested in it or not because we were just, you know, we were kids. Uh, and I remember just like watching it and just being, just talking about it nonstop. And then having her invite me to watch like some Star Trek with her. And then being like super into Star Trek and like aliens are so cool. She also showed me uh, Stargate, which is also by the director as well. That's and right. And she's like, cool, yeah. like, I'm just going to, like, I didn't know if you're going to ever get out of this, you know, Disney Nick Jr. phase. But now that you are fully into this, here's this world of sci-fi that's just been, like, there that I've been unsure if you've been ready for. But now that you've, like, fully just accepted Independence Day into your life now, here's this whole other world. And just being like, yo, this is it. I'm starting now. Once, you know, you discuss the infiniteness that is space, it's like, cool, it would make zero sense that as vast and as wide and as just unmeasurable as the cosmos are, that great, only one thing exists. It's like, great, like, that to me doesn't make sense. So I'm like, you know, it makes sense for there to be aliens, even if there are like little tardigans that are just floating. Like, like everything has a start, so it <laughs> starts somewhere. <laughs> 
originally, I think my whole mindset would probably be like, great, they're probably here to take over because of like, films like Independence Day. Uh, but I think now like having just been super into sci-fi ever since and like looking at the world differently, I think it would be, it would be very <laughs> taxing on a species to decide we're going to travel light years away to pick a fight. Like that's our main thing. We, we're gonna spend our gas money to go somewhere else to pick a fight that may or may not work out for us. Aliens are, in my mind, another view on like colonization. That's always, oh, this is what colonization will look like for an advanced species. The worst thing that could happen is if someone comes and takes my things for no reason other than just, just to take my things, which in our history as humans has happened before. Like think about the Mayans and like the conquistadors come with like actual guns. Like, oh my God, they're shooting thunder at us and we don't know what this is. This is like, I don't know how to, like, what do we do? This is just another example of what would happen if like a much far advanced species came to our planet and took over be like, we don't know what's happening. They're shooting lasers. This is like way above what we know how to handle. So I think like alien attacks are very colonial in that mindset around we're gonna send these ships over to enslave, annihilate and take over and strip of your resources as opposed to like coming to make peace. And I think that's where a lot of these films are pretty much skewed from the lens of like, this is colonization. It's probably also why you see a lot of films like Mars Attacks or Independence Day. Like, great, we are being attacked and they're trying to hurt us. So we're gonna attack back because we're Earth and Earth fights back. And here it comes. We are officially entering spoiler territory. For those of you who want to go into this film as fresh as possible, this is where we part. If you've been enjoying the show so far and you want more My Favorite Movie Is, I encourage you to check out more episodes on our show page on the podcasting app you're listening on right now, or find all of our episodes at mfmipodcast.com. We've covered plenty of other movies, and any movie lover worth their salt has surely seen at least one of them. But all right, enough dilly-dallying. Let's dive into spoiler territory. And you know what's even more interesting when I think about your take about this? Who are the heroes at the end of the day who really get down and dirty in the nitty gritty to save the entire planet from being colonized? A black man and a Jew. Literally, like those are the two people who are there to save the day. Now I know the president. The president, you know, shoots some <laughs> shoots some ships or whatever. And also this, um, you know, Randy Quaid's character. Mm-hmm. He's a war veteran, a Vietnam veteran, right? He's he's an army vet and he's also a blue collar worker. Yeah, a blue collar worker. Some people think that he's clinically insane, Mm -hmm. which like, by the way, nobody probably talks about the fact that this movie never disproves that he was ever abducted by aliens, which makes me, which makes me think (laughs) that he probably was. Randy Quaid and his children, are they mixed? What I got was that they were members of like either the First Nation or there were some indigenous group. And I think like the mother either was indigenous herself and just got with Randy Quaid because he, I think, works like intermittently on farmland and things like that. I mean, that. Vietnam War veteran, you know, it's not unheard of for someone in Vietnam to to meet somebody of a First Nation and have children with them. But that's such a subtle detail. That's mm-hmm. so to, sort of in the background of this movie. But as we're talking about, it really 
I think, paints a, a very beautiful picture. This film, like you said, like a bunch of films, like they are very cognitive of like, great, we don't want it to be too white. So we do want to have like bits of minorities here, bits of the, uh, the unspoken here, or characters that are like a part of like subset groups. Like you have the black army captain, you have the Jewish father and son who are out there trying to solve the crimes. You have even... Vivica Fox at some point is like a stripper that yeah. is able to mm-hmm. like be a nurse and somehow mm-hmm. keep the first lady alive as a stripper, fully inscripting every walk of life person to come and help out. You, you even have the folks who are in like the caravans who are now like chauffeuring Americans who have been displaced during the explosion to an army base. Everyone is coming together in this film in America to like not go quietly into the night. And ultimately they will be the ones who save us mm-hmm. in the end is basically like what this movie is saying, which is like so freaking inspiring regardless of whether or not it was intentional. Yeah. Tying back to your idea of colonization. Like there's a whole element of this film that is like the government hides Area 51, this movie portrays Area 51 as though it was an actual alien crash. The government sees impending colonization and tries to completely suppress it. The film also comes off in a very measured way of anti-government and pro-government in a way that I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Anti-government in the fact that like the... Uh, I think the Secretary of Defense is fully aware of Area 51 because he's, I think, given this lens of being like a longtime politician and President Whitmore is given this lens of like, oh, he's like a, a liberal president. So the whole thing of like, you fully can't trust the government, but you can trust the government only if the president is willing to actually get into a fighter jet and fight for your rights in America. Yeah, the the movie sort of has this... Um... It's kind of a complicated relationship with government in a sort of way, because, you know, the only really the only, you know, older white character besides for the uh, army general is like the villain, just straight up the only directly antagonized character that is human. And even he is sort of like redeemed quotes with the prayer circle that Judd Hirsch's character, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like <laughs> he goes Are into the Jewish? prayer circle and he's like, yeah, it's like, oh, I'm not Jewish. And he goes like, yeah, nobody's perfect. I'm not Jewish. Nobody's perfect. Which was just a beautiful to me, like a beautiful moment there, especially as a Jewish man. Like, you know, this kind of this is one of the few films that I've seen that actually has just no strings attached, honest Jewish representation in it. And that is real Hebrew that he is saying in that scene. That is a real prayer that he is saying. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the president of the United States, who is the face of government, is the one who you know, leads the, leads the day. In his scene, like, everyone's, like, firing off the nukes, nothing's hitting, and they're like, oh, no, we failed. And he's like, I'm going to give it one more shot. I want another shot at it. Sir, I strongly recommend you disengage. Eagle One. Fox Three. Direct hit. Squadron leaders, fire at will, fire at will, fire at will. We're going in. Squadron leaders, take point. And it hits, and he goes, yo, we're in it. Everyone go for it. Like, great, the president has basically become, like, the 
warrior leader of old of like Greek or like some like tale mm-hmm. of like great the king leads by a horseback in the front type situation of like this is what patriotism looks like you got to get in your ship fire next to your soldiers and that's what it means to be a leader it's very fascinating to kind of see that lens it's also interesting knowing that um, with this film and you're talking about Hirsch's character there was a scene that they cut from I think Palestine no that they cut from Israel there's a scene at the very end of the movie where like Palestine and Israel like I think there's like a scene where like the two soldiers are like holding up a flag together or, or like they're like joining hands together and they had to cut that from, I think, the release in Israel because it was showing that of course. Palestinians and Israel like coming together. Great, the world's about to end, but we like set aside our differences to be like, Great. Not even at the end of the world Not will Israel there. allow for <laughs> that like, kind of imagery. It's like, I'm sorry, we'd, we'd rather the planet be completely destroyed. <laughs> There's no way we're coming together. I don't care what happened. There's a scene in the movie where they try to nuke the aliens. Which yeah. is such an American tradition. What do we do? Nuke them. We let's nuke them. Like nuke the bastards. Uh, I think that's literally the line, right? It's like nuke the bastards, nuke the bastards or something. Yep. Nuke them. Let's nuke the bastards. And that is such an American colonial. Robert Logan. Uh, you know, like <laughs> like uh, old guard government way to deal with problems. Blow them up. And, and what happens? It fails. The nuke totally fails and it sets them and it also kills people in the process and it kills some of their own and i think that that is just like uh looking back on that now kind of balling it's like a big like big cojones moment to portray a scene like that and of course this was this was pre 9-11 so so much was different after Mm 9-11 so much about war films of any capacity but like to show that scene and to portray it in that way I don't think a lot of people picked up on it because big action movie woo you know like on American soil too and on American soil and it's guarded behind this idea of like well they have to try something and they have to have that moment of failure right and of course the director's German so he can get away with doing something you know criticizing America like this in such a covert way but he tries doing it and it fails and it kills American people I think that 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 is a very staunch anti-American element of this narrative that that is so important and kind of ties into what you're saying of this, like in a way that they like the government in some ways they don't like the government. Even with that scene where they're like nuking on American soil, like president Whitmore is not for it. Like right. he at some point, like just like sits down, he looks defeated and everyone around is like, listen, I'll take it off your hands. I'll do it. And it's like, cool they're fully taking what they know is going to be the fallout of the blame from the president that we like and putting it on this like old guard this old long time like war guy of, like great i'm gonna do it i know war i've been a, i've been there for a, a long time so it does this really interesting thing of like providing moments of like damning the government for like being being able to look at american lives like great we're willing to sacrifice the few for the many in this case but also being like, hey, as a president, I'm not going to sacrifice any more lives. If anyone else is going to die, I'm going to die with them. So it's like they toe the line of like, that's messed up. Here's what I would have done. That's also messed up, but here's what he's going to do. So it's like, ooh. They don't really make a true enough statement to say like they're leaning one way, but they provide two options of like they do this and they also do this. How do you feel about that? I mean, this is your all-time favorite movie, so like, of course you like it, but like – how do you feel about that, to use a political term, moderate take on government? 
Do you think that a take like that could ultimately has a positive or a negative impact on people who are viewing the film at the end of the day? This could only be like a 90s thing where it's like, great, they're mm-hmm. going to be comfortable bombing yeah. this on American soil. Post 9-11, they would have most likely have placed this over like an ocean and then bombed it over an ocean. Apparently, Independence Day Resurgence, the sequel, which I have not seen and really don't plan on, there's a whole scene that, take place, that takes place over the Atlantic Ocean, apparently. So I've heard. I think that, honestly, is what makes this film, I think, uh, a time capsule of where it was. It's like, great, we're comfortable having this alien spaceship target buildings in California and New York, blow them all up, and then we're comfortable with them shooting nukes at them over what they believe to not be a populated area, but are willing to sacrifice those lives. But also, let's redeem the government by having them have this really great president who is really heartfelt, has his daughter with them, really cares about America, has these great scenes. I mean, I think if anything, yeah, they do a great job playing moderate, and I feel like moderate fits for a 90s film. Yeah, I think this film as a whole is not thinly veiled, but just veiled enough patriotism In the entire film, Jeff Goldblum plays, like, David, who is this, like, really smart tech guy, uh, and he alone figures out how to fight the aliens with, like, a Microsoft computer because apparently it's compatible with this alien technology. But he alone, in America, figures this out. Not only does he figure out the countdown, he figures out the communication needed across the world, he figures out the Trojan horse, and with all those three things, there's that scene where like they use like the Morse code to like spread the message, mm-hmm, and yeah. the first scene we get with that is like, uh, it's like some English troops being like, it's from the Americans. They want to organize a counteroffensive. It's about, about bloody, bloody time. time. And it's like, <laughs> literally, this whole film's like, great, every other country has been waiting, like, what's America going to do? We don't know what we're going to do. We're just going to wait and hope that America tells us what to do because we can't finish this war without them. America solved this war. Like, no, like every other country was just waiting to get blown up, but America at the last minute figured it out and solved the problem. Go America. I very much left this film with like the mindset of like, cool, like aliens are scary, like they have these little hooked claws, they have like the tentacles, or have to like, you know, colonize and take these over. And then you watch films like Stargate where it's like, let's show you the vast array of aliens. There are some who are like here for conquest. There's some who are here to like, great, we just wanna coexist. And so just like being able to see that and then being able to see a great like discussing how their worlds differ and then hearing about how our own world could differ like we're like we're a world that has like it's oxygen heavy and like we are a species that exists and throws off oxygen and water and like how it could differ depending on different environments and then from there like looking at like animals and how they're like you know animals who like can survive specifically near like the opening of a volcano and nowhere else and it's like being able to kind of just like look at the aliens that exist not only on our planet but like they could exist everywhere else and so it just kind of opened up a lot of worlds of like let me look at my world differently than how i used to because this film has like opened my eyes to like just a lot of different possibilities space is infinite and it's vast and it's scarier than 
some random vampire or boogeyman. <laughs> uh, and it was a film that I think fully shook me out of this childlike stage of like, I'm going to be afraid of this film and not watch it. So like, I want this film to scare me so I can figure out what it is about this film that scares me. And yeah, this film changed me for that by getting me into these films earlier so I wouldn't miss them. So I would have this foundation of sci-fi to further propel me into bigger and better projects down the line. And thank God this film did change him. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the critically thinking, sci-fi loving Marlon we have today. Somebody who I'm very fortunate to have met and somebody you've been very fortunate to hear from. Before today, you probably didn't think of Independence Day as an impassioned rally against colonialism from the very populations that are affected by it, or a movie at odds with itself over its portrayal of the government and the military. But important perspectives like those, especially from people whose experiences differ from our own, help us gain even more insight into movies that we think are maybe past their prime. That is what I promise to provide on every episode of this show, and Marlin satisfied that promise today. I'm gonna put a link to my episode of Marlin's Corner in the show notes below. Be sure to give it a listen and follow Marlin and his podcast, Marlin's Corner, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Anyway, there's still plenty to reap from Independence Day now that we've blown the lid right off of it. So why not join us in the My Favorite Movie Is Discord community so we can talk about it. We're a group of passionate, positive movie lovers who want nothing more than to hear what you have to say. Do you love this movie? Do you not love this movie? Do you have a unique take on it? Is there something missing from our feeble perspectives? Well, the only person who's gonna let us know is you. So click on the link in the show notes to join our Discord community today, completely free of charge. We may even do an Independence Day watch party on that Discord server. It won't be July 4th anymore when we do it, but it's never too late to enjoy Will Smith kicking some alien butt. Once again, you can join our free Discord community today by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'll see you there. My Favorite Movie Is is a Larry Freed Presents production. It was created by me, Larry Freed. It is also produced and hosted by me. And this episode was also co-edited by me alongside our house editor, Fernando Queiroz. Our graphic designer is Monica Sarmiento and our motion graphics designer is Elton Greenfield. Our theme song, Now and Then, as well as other original music featured on this show, was composed and performed by Matt Gorduke. A huge thank you to Marlon Williford for being such an amazing guest on our show, for providing so much insight and for being so generous with his time. And another massive special thanks to our patrons, Charles, Moe, Keith, Tony, Taylor, and Sean. You guys are the reason I feel motivated enough to continue making this show. And for that, I thank you deeply. Did you know that patrons of My Favorite Movie Is get uncut and ad-free versions of every episode of our show for just $5 a month? That's just a little bit more than your average cup of coffee. Uh, unless you're getting venti mocha frappuccinos at Starbucks, in which case you're probably paying more than that. These uncut and ad-free versions of the show sometimes add up to double, sometimes even triple the amount of podcast content. So if you want more, my favorite movie is, and you also want to help support this show and help keep it growing, you can join us at patreon.com slash MFMI podcast. This has been your host, Larry Freed. Thank you so much for listening to my favorite movie is.